Hi, good morning everyone. Thanks for joining. This is Seeking Sustainability Live number 213 and I'm talking with Winifred Bird today from Chicago. Thank you so much Winnie for joining. Thank you for inviting me. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, check out inboundambassador.com and you can also find me on buymeacoffee.com slash JJ Walsh to get some bonus information and insights from the series. It's so nice to have you join. I'm a big fan of your book and it was wonderful doing all the research for this talk and realizing how many interesting articles about environmental journalism you've also done around Japan. So I'll have to have you back in the future and talk about some of your other writing as well, if that's okay. Yeah, that would be fabulous. Thank you. So just to give the audience an idea of what you do, you're a writer, journalist, and a translator. You also translate a lot of Japanese books, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, especially recently, uh, I've been doing more translation work. Um, well, with COVID, of course, and um, with two young kids, it's a bit harder to travel like I used to for journalism. Um, so yeah, I've been translating fiction and nonfiction um, for the past few years. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the book that we're talking about today is called, let me, do you have the book there? You can hold it up. Yes, I do. It's so, Eating Wild Japan about foraging food in the forest. So how yeah. did you get interested in this topic about forest and wild foods in Japan? Um, well, it's really a combination or I kind of like the the focal point of several different interests of mine. Um, first of all, food. I've always loved cooking since I was a little girl. Um, my mom always let me cook with her uh, from the time I can remember, really. So I have a, a strong connection with food, and it's always been a way for me to connect with other people in my life um, and connect with places, trying um, food from different different cultures. Um, so of course, when I moved to Japan uh, around 2005, learning the cuisine and really um, getting into the different ingredients was, was an important way for me to start to feel at home there. Um, and then as you mentioned, I have also been an environmental journalist since uh, around 2000 and Eight, maybe I would say. Um, in Japan, I was um, writing quite a lot about forests and agriculture um, and wildlife. And then later on in my time in Japan, I moved to Nagano Prefecture, um, which is in the Japan Alps, as most of your listeners probably know. Uh, a lot of snow and a long winter. So they have a very strong culture of eating sansai or um, wild mountain vegetables, edible wild plants. Um, so I came into contact with that and really just kind of fell in love with it. Um, and then when I moved back to the United States, um, 
I wanted to share some of those experiences and the Sansai seemed like a perfect way to combine all of those different aspects of my life and my time in Japan. Wonderful. Wonderful. And uh, there's beautiful illustrations through the book as well. Uh, You worked with Paul Pointer, is that right? Yes, Paul is a friend in Matsumoto. Uh, He still lives there. I've moved back to Chicago, but I met Paul when I was living in Matsumoto. And yeah, he is originally from England. Uh, He's lived there for quite a few years now. And he's an artist, an illustrator. He makes his own books, uh, beautiful little handmade books. And he's also an arborist and teaches tree climbing, just a really interesting person. Um, so I saw some of his handmade books that he had done, and and um, he had kind of similar line drawings as are somewhat similar to what, what's in this book. Uh, so that was kind of the aesthetic I had in mind, and I thought he would be the perfect person to to ask to contribute the, the illustrations. Unfortunately, he said yes. So That's wonderful. I, I really enjoy his illustrations. And I also followed the link that you shared to his uh, tree support group, like a group that trims trees and takes care of the forest in Sorashi on YouTube. Such a beautiful, beautiful video. So I hope to have him on in a future episode and talk about uh, forest maintenance and diversity of trees. He sounds like a fascinating person as well as a very talented illustrator. Yeah, I hope you have a chance to get him on because, yeah, he's really spent a lot of time out in the forest kind of and really thinking about our relationship with with trees and plants in the forest. Um, So, yeah, he has a lot to contribute. Um, And speaking of illustrations, your mom is also an illustrator. You were talking about um, having a nameplate that she designed for your book. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, my mom, Julie Ditto, is an artist uh, in now, recent, as of a couple weeks ago, in New York City, moved from the Bay Area. Um, and yeah, I asked her if she would design a book plate for this project, which I happen to have one right here. I don't know if you can see um, yeah, so she designed this lady. She has fiddlehead ferns for hair and leaves for her collar and it's holding a big plate to, to hold my signature on. So it's a just um, these days with COVID and everything, we can't do um, at real book signings. So instead of that, what I'm offering is for anyone who buys a copy of the book from an independent bookseller, Unfortunately, this is really only for people in the United States because it's hard for me to mail internationally. Um, But if you do happen to be in the States and you email me with your address uh, and proof of purchase, I will send you a free signed book plate designed by my mom. That's wonderful. I love that. Yeah, it's international mail at the moment is crazy. And then another thing has been crazy just about living in the States in the last year. And I I love watching your Instagram and some of your quotes from your website as well. And you talk about plants being something that keeps you sane and just the simple beauty of plants growing in your garden as an avid gardener and how that gives you hope for the world. Is that right? 
Yeah, I mean, I I really feel like I got through the past year by um, spending more time with plants <laughs> and with my family. With my family with plants, I would say we live in a small town um, uh, near Rockford, Illinois, and there's a number of state parks near where we live. So basically, we haven't been able to go anywhere except outside to go you know, hiking in nature and, and picking, we go pick berries or whatever is in season, greens or watercress. And um, yeah, that's, that's been really wonderful. And it, it also has made me very appreciative of, of that, um, especially in the context of the Fukushima disaster, because I, I guess it made me think a lot about how that was taken away from people um, it can be such a sustaining connection and way to get through these crises, but sadly, um, in many cases, people aren't able to have that because of pollution or industrial accidents like the nuclear, nuclear disaster that really took away people's relationship to nature when they most needed it because those places were contaminated. So I've, I've been very grateful, um, this year for that that connection amazing and i i really i found so many inspiring stories from your book it was really wonderful uh tell us a little bit about the logistics how long did it take you um i'll show a map basically from hokkaido all the way down to okinawa is that right you did your research um Unfortunately, I have never been to Okinawa. It's one of the few parts of Japan I have not yet got to visit. Um, sadly, I'd love to go there. But I did get as far as um, Shikoku and southern Honshu. So, um, yeah, well, let's see. Um, I moved back from Japan, I guess it was in 2014. And within a few years, I had the idea for the book. I kind of decided that I I wanted to do it or I felt like I, I needed to, <laughs> to write this book and I uh, started planning it and um, I was able to return to Japan three times um, over three years, three different um, spring seasons, which is kind of the best time. There's foraging you can do all year, but that's the kind of the, the most exciting peak time. So let's see if I can remember the first time I went back. Well, first of all, I spent some time just like scouring the, the book district in Tokyo and finding like everything I possibly could in used bookstores on edible wild plants to send back home. And then I went, let's see, I went down. Oh, yeah, I went to Aso Caldera. So I did make it down to Kyushu as well um, and had a really fabulous lunch down there with a woman who's very knowledgeable about all different kinds of wild plants. Um, and then I spent some time, let's see, um, north of Kyoto and on that trip, I'm trying to remember, I think there, oh, and then I went up to Nagano Prefecture to the um, Afan Woodland Trust um, owned by C.W. Nickel or, or founded by him. And um, yeah, so that was my first trip. Um, my second trip, I think I might have even written it down somewhere, but um, second trip I went to Shikoku to, to learn about seaweed. 
uh, Kyoto to <laughs> eat a lot of bamboo and then up to Iwate Prefecture to learn about warabi bracken um, ferns and their rhizomes and how they have been used throughout history. Um, and then on my final trip, which I was accompanied by my sister, my 10-month-old son, and I was also pregnant with my second son at the time, uh, we went up to Hokkaido. Oh, I had also made another trip to Hokkaido. I forgot to mention that. Went up to Hokkaido down to Akita, um, and then did a lot of recipe testing in the mountains of Akita, um, and also went to Kyoto again. So that was, uh, yeah, it was a lot of traveling, for sure. Uh, well, it's such a wonderful way to travel with such an interesting theme in mind. I love that. I hope we can add more of that in the travel industry, like foraging for forest vegetables or wild vegetables and then cooking it in a local village. This is a much more sustainable type of tourism that I hope we can develop in Japan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's also a way to help support people in those rural areas who are trying to carry on these traditions. Because um, yeah. that's sometimes a struggle Absolutely. as people get older and yeah. And leaves the countryside. And to mention that, I came across an interesting uh, response from one of your readers or friends saying, is the appeal of foraging for food in the forest, is it because it's free? It's like a free dinner. And then the whole concept of don't take more than you need that you found in the museums and how indigenous people in the States, in Japan, indigenous people know you only take as much as you need and you have to maintain the forest for future um, food. So there were so many interesting themes in, in terms of food sustainability that kept coming up over and over in the book. Yeah, um, yeah, there's just so much there um, that doing this prop project really made me think a lot more about all of those issues. Um, yeah, you, you brought up the issue of um, not taking more than you need. Um, there's a, an author, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a, a Native American. Uh, she's a, a botanist. She studies moss and a wonderful writer. She has a, a couple books, um, one gathering moss, and there's another one braiding sweetgrass about um, use of wild plants in Native American cultures. Um, and she talks about the concept of recipro reciprocity um, between people and plants versus a more, what I would call it, exploitative or extractive relationship. So I think our relationships with wild plants can be extremely positive and meaningful and um, I guess creating these connections between people and between plants, but they can also be extremely negative and have often been extremely negative in the past um, and in the present where you kind of um, just take from everywhere in the world, whatever you want, without having a relationship to the place over generations, over the long term, having the kind of relationship that makes you realize, you know, we need to care for these, these places and give back and make sure that we are leaving enough plants for the future generations. 
Um, so I think our, our lifestyle, our urban lifestyles today tend to feed into that, that more extractive relationship if we're not careful um, with how we are, we are getting our food and where we are getting our food from. There's a really interesting discussion about um, the diverse use of different mountain vegetables, how it was used, it's often called famine food. Um, it was used for pure survival. But then on the other side of it, you've got the same vegetables from the mountain, which are so rare, being used in very luxurious dishes in Kyoto. It's a real interesting concept. Yeah, that was one of the main things I discovered during my research was this kind of two-sided um, symbolism or meaning that uh, sansai and edible wild plants have within Japanese culture and kind of have, have always had going back even a thousand years. Um, you know, you come across these ancient poems uh, about, you know, the aristocracy and the royals going out to the fields to collect wild greens because they're very special. And that was an, a form of entertainment for them. And it was also had religious meaning. So for certain, um, to mark certain religious holidays, they would go and gather certain plants and prepare, for example, the nanakusagayu, the um, rice porridge with sup, or it used to be a soup, but now it's a porridge with, with seven different wild greens. And there was another one that was made with 12 different wild greens. So they had these, um, these plants, um, were, were connected with kind of luxury and um, they were kind of like the finest thing that you could have. Yet at the same time, they were often being used uh, for people to get through famines um, because back in the days before agricultural crops were improved, nowadays we have cold hardy varieties and um, many different uh, improved crops. But in the past, that wasn't the case and there were just tragic um, crop failures on a, on really on a regular basis. And so people had to have a way to get through these times. Also, there were, you know, some farmers were poor, uh, poorer and had less land. So on a yearly basis, they would run out of their staple grains and they would need something to tide them over. Um, so people would rely on wild plants, uh, which is a tradition reaching back to the Joman period before agriculture was even developed. Um, so, so in, in a sense, some of these plants took on a very bitter and kind of tragic meaning for certain communities, even as they also had a kind of celebratory meaning at the same time. Um, even sometimes in those, those same places like Tochimochi or, or Tochinomi, the, the, um, nuts of the Japanese horse chestnut in mountain villages, they were a very important famine food because um, you could collect them in the forest and store them for a, a really long time because they're very bitter and they have these toxic compounds in them um, that prevent, uh, uh, you know, various insects and animals from, from getting to them that have to be leached out before you eat them. So they could be harvested in, in large quantities and stored up in the rafters. People would keep them up in the rafters to kind of be smoked by the fire from their uh, erori or from their hearth. Um, and then when they didn't have enough rice to eat, they would take them out and process them into tochimochi, uh, pounded, um, 
kind of sticky rice or or millet mixed with the the um, horse chestnuts. At the same time, even in these in these same communities, tochi mochi was like a, a food that they would eat at celebrations as well. So that was interesting to me too that even for for one group of people, they could play both roles. Yeah. Uh, the whole concept of tochi mochi was so interesting to me. I love all the references um, back to the Jomon era, uh, finding it in archaeological digs. Um, one of the people you talked to equated an addiction to tochi mochi similar to an addiction to tobacco is really interesting and then you have this quote here uh one of your people that you interviewed said there is an irresistible attractiveness about it tochi mochi is nostalgic rather than tasty. It represents the flavor of the mountains of a past so old it might be woven into Japanese genes. As a forestry scientist, Shingo Taniguchi also suggested. That's so interesting. Yeah, that was something I came across. A number of people said that to me. Um, and yeah, it's such an interesting food because it, it does go back so deeply into Japanese history. And you really sense that connection of, of um, you know, across all those generations, that plant and that food really pulling people through history and allowing them to live in these places. And, and people have a great um, respect for that, for that and for those plants for those reasons, especially, especially when they were still depending on it. The trees were, were very carefully protected you know, you couldn't just go out and chop chop one down. You know, there were all sorts of rules regulating how and when the plants were used. Um, and that's why one reason why they're so widespread in Japan today is that they've kind of been favored in that way. Um, and yeah, that, that forestry scientist did suggest to me, like, it's in our genes because we needed them to survive, suggesting kind of that, like, we learn to love them despite this very pungent flavor that they have. I don't know the science behind that, but it's an interesting idea for sure. It is really interesting. And then, of course, it's also connected to diversity of forests. And the problem when tochimochi or using horse chestnuts went out of favor is that because they weren't being harvested, the trees were not protected. And then loggers would come in and just cut down the trees and take it out. So then you're losing your diverse forest. So it's all it's very connected in many parts of your book about um, what is wild, what is cultivated and how it often blurs and goes back and forth. Could you talk about that a little bit? It's so interesting. Sure, yeah. Well, yeah, there's constant movement back and forth across those boundaries and definitions. Um, some of the plants we consider wild today were initially brought in um, as cultivated crops. I was just working on a project, a translation project about yuzu uh, and I learned that they were initially brought from China. Yuzu trees were brought from China um, as a cultivated plant, and they became naturalized in Japan. And for centuries and centuries, they were a wild plant, essentially. And then again in the 20th century, they were 
brought again back into being a cultivated plant. So uh, that kind of shift happens for many plants. Um, in terms of diversity, one of the interesting things that I kind of learned during the research was that, or came came to think about during the research was the, the way that when you have a culture that is more reliant on wild foods, there is a greater need for diversity because you're not able to produce a reliable supply of one particular thing like we're able to do with corn and soybeans and rice today. So you have to cultivate and foster and nurture as much diversity as you can um, in the landscape because that is what gives you food security and security and the ability to survive because across the seasons you need to be harvesting all different plants from all different types of habitats all different parts of the plant um, and that means you need to protect a kind of mosaic of different habitats so it really gives a kind of practical foundation to some of these ideas that have become very abstract to us today, like protect diversity, you know, sometimes it's hard to feel how that is connected to our life and our survival, but, but it really is. And the more you become connected with these wild edible plants, I think the, the clearer that becomes. And there are so many great examples there. I want to talk about bamboo and even bamboo diversity in a minute. But we have a great uh, comment here from Joan joining from Facebook. Thanks, Joan. She says, did people say similar things about other wild foods as well? The tochimochi being part of Japanese genes. I also thought it was really interesting how you continually mention the difference in flavor between wild foods and farmed foods nearly to the disflavor of farmed foods. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's see. As far as the flavor goes, there's there's lots of bitter foods, bitter wild foods that um, a lot of Japanese people love. Um, for example, fuki, fukinoto, um, which you might have had mixed in with miso, like fuki miso. Um, for me, it was very difficult to eat some of these foods when I first moved to Japan and before I had really started eating a lot of wild foods. Our palate becomes acclimated to agricultural flavors, I guess, that have, you know, we breed plants so that they develop certain characteristics so that they keep well or have high calorie calories in relationship to the amount of work they take or various different things other than just nutrition and um, vitamin mineral content. <laughs> so um, a lot of those flavors have been bred out of cultivated foods and it takes a while to get used to them again. But then once you do get used to them, I mean, I find them addictive myself. I was just, just tonight having dinner. This was not a wild food, but I went out and I picked some mustard greens and kale from my garden and cooked them and I was like oh my god these are so good they just taste like spring um and I you know my husband took one bite and he was like whoa this is bitter why is this bitter and I was like well just try eating it and you'll get used to it and <laughs> um so yeah I think and also I think um I, I don't know much about herbalism but bitter 
plants and bitter flavors have a very important healing role in herbalism as well, I know. Um, and I can't remember the caller's first, the first half of her question. Yeah. Sorry. Uh <laughs> That's okay. I think you got there. Uh, we have a comment from Chuck Kayser, who's an organic farmer in Shiga. And I know you spent some time in Shiga as part of your research. And he says it's a strong flavor due to higher vitamin mineral contact content. Is that right? That's my understanding. Um, you know, I didn't get into great detail in the book on like the health properties of Sansai, but I do know that they tend to be um, more nutritious than than a lot of cultivated plants, higher in various minerals and and vitamins. Um, I'm I'm showing yeah. on screen uh, green salt. Do you make that from mustard greens? Is that right? Um. Well, uh, the recipe that I got from um, Reiko Hanalka in uh, Kyushu for green salt was uh, made from chickweed. It's a kind of, um, I think it's pretty traditional in Japan to make it from chickweed. I, I did a bit of internet research and I kept coming across people using chickweed salt for um, in place of toothpaste. <laughs> I don't know much about it, but um, yeah, she made it using chickweed. I made it using some other greens because it wasn't, I couldn't find any good chickweed. So I think you can you can adapt the recipe to different different plants. Yeah, wonderful. Um, speaking of diversity, going back to one of your loves, which I don't know if you still love it after having an eleven course meal of just bamboo, but tell us a bit about bamboo and your experience at the restaurant. That just sounds amazing. That was featured in Kyoto Journal. Yeah, yeah, they were kind enough to print an excerpt from the book uh, a couple months ago. So, uh, yeah, I love bamboo. I still love bamboo. I've gotten over that 11-course um, meal. That was, like, enough for one year for sure. Um, but, yeah, there's a restaurant. There's there's a couple, I think. But the, the one that I found and happened upon was called Uoka Restaurant in um, the kind of southwest corner of Kyoto, the city of Kyoto. Um, and that is, it's in the Rakusai neighborhood where they traditionally grow bamboo. Um, so Kyoto bamboo is, is um, very well known for its like mild flavor, good taste, like they really baby the plants. They have these groves that they just put so much care into the, the cultivation of the bamboo. It's mosodake, mosochiku is um, a, a commonly cultivated type of bamboo that was originally brought from China. Um, there are a number of wild types of bamboo that are eaten in Japan as well. And, and some of the moso groves have also kind of been, or quite a, a few of them have been neglected and abandoned. Um, so they're like semi-feral is kind of what I call them in the book. But um, but the ones in around the restaurant were definitely very well care, cared for. Um, and the, the farmers will go out to dig up the bamboo shoots before they even come above the soil. Like there's just like a tiny little tip poking out of, at the at the top. And then, then they'll, they'll dig that up because that's when they have the best flavor. And um, yeah, this restaurant... 
they just they they love bamboo and and they have taken it to they've made a, like a high art form out of <laughs> bamboo cuisine and um yeah it was it was fun i i spent a, a day or two in the kitchen um learning how the bamboo was prepared which was it was interesting to me that like the head chef was in charge of the like preparation and selection of the bamboo rather than being in charge of like preparing all the fancy dishes with it he was in this kind of like special side kitchen boiling big vats of bamboo because that ingredient kind of determines the success of all the other dishes. Um, so I, I got to, to spend some time with him and then, then have this fabulous meal of, of 11 courses of bamboo, including bamboo mousse for dessert, which was kind of interesting. So. It sounds really fun yeah. and I'd love, I'd love to try it. Um, bamboo is one of the things that comes up again and again, especially when we talk to people who are renovating old houses in the rural countryside and how bamboo has taken over. I think Paul Fridale, uh, one of the first to talk about restoring a 130-year-old house, uh, talked about fighting back the bamboo and then giving bamboo shoots to all his neighbors. And it created this great sense of community because everybody was really happy to have these beautiful bamboo shoots to eat. And then, uh, you know, kind of tit for tat, they helped him with other things. Um, but the whole idea uh, you mentioned about the restaurant, the chef has to have diverse sources for his bamboo to make sure that he's got enough. Because what I didn't realize is that it, it, it could fail. Like I always think of bamboo as something that's like a weed, it grows everywhere without maintenance. But he had like four or five different sources for bamboo, is that right? Oh yeah, I mean he must have dozens of different suppliers that he cultivates within his neighborhood. Um, because yeah, like, he that of course if he doesn't have bamboo he's going to be in big trouble right and he he wants the best and it, there are like very fine differences between each person's bamboo field and that can vary year by year and he wants to again it's this idea of kind of uh security in diversity security by having many different suppliers and many different relationships that he he cultivates um yeah. And one interesting thing that I learned was that the cultivated um, bamboo groves are much more productive of bamboo shoots than the overgrown wild ones, because when the more kind of open, sunny space you have in between the calms or the tall um, stalks of bamboo, that kind of signals to the plant to send up more shoots to fill in that space. So they intentionally keep their groves kind of open, um, whereas, you know, over the years, if it's not tended to, they just grow um, into a denser and denser thicket, but they're not necessarily as productive of shoots. Yeah, that's interesting. And then very, very similar to what we were talking about before, about the, the horse chestnut and how once it stopped being cultivated or, or wanted as a food source, uh, the trees were destroyed. And then uh, you also talk about in the book how bamboo used to be used for everything. 
from spoons to baskets to bowls and how when those products stopped being made from bamboo, um, people stopped tending the bamboo and it kind of went wild or you didn't, it wasn't as effective as a crop. And you realize, you know, all these things are connected. What what natural sustainable products are made from bamboo, if that's replaced by plastic, that creates, you know, problem for the whole bamboo industry in, in terms of what happens to the bamboo groves, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the underlying point across all the chapters and all the different plants I talk about is is just the way that our culture determines what our environment is like in so many different ways, as well as our environment determining what our culture is like in return. Um, but in, in terms of, yeah, with the Totimochi, it was the reverse. The problem was kind of the reverse in that um, once it was no longer necessary as a survival food, um, you know, due to improvements in agricultural technology and, and also really importantly in distribution of food, you know, once we had a national or global food system, people didn't need those trees as much as they once had. Um, so they stopped protecting them and these um, timber dealers started to come in and kind of prey on the elderly people in these depopulated, kind of aging, impoverished, somewhat impoverished mountain communities and say, hey, I see you have a tochi tree on your property. I'll give you the equivalent of $500 for your tree. Of course, it's worth much, 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 much more to them when it's sliced up in timber to make tabletops out of. They'll come in, take it out. You know, they'll lift it out with a helicopter is what they told me and leave everything they don't need, just take the, the best part of the tree. Um, and they were just plucking them out of the environment in that way. And luckily a group of citizens, this is in um, uh, uh, north of, also north of Kyoto, but uh, in Chiga prefecture, but um, a group of citizens realized what was happening and realized the value of the trees because they have Aside from the connection to food culture and tradition and the history of the area, they also play a very important environmental role in that they hold the soil. They kind of help stabilize the soil on the riverbanks. They grow next to rivers and streams, and they provide habitat they, um, for lots of different animals. They um, are great pollinator trees for insects. Um, so, so people realized this, and they said, hey, wait a second, like, we can't let this happen. And formed a citizens group, um, you know, lobbied the, the prefectural government and, and eventually were able to, thankfully, to protect the remaining trees um, for posterity. So it was, yeah, a really inspiring, tragic history, but an inspiring story at the same time. Yeah. Uh, we have a question from Joan, which I think is definitely something uh, worth thinking about. Once you learn about all the foraging and the forest vegetables, do you now look at the landscapes as you're traveling? Do you look at it differently? Um, let's see. I mean, I definitely like 
look at it as what can I eat wherever I go and wherever I am. Like, I can't go on a hike anymore without being like, ooh, like, I see that and that looks delicious. Um, probably because I just love to eat to start with. So that's always kind of my focus anyway. Um, but yeah, I think I do realize more now, both in the United States and in Japan, that landscapes even that I used to consider wild, untouched, have always been, or for many, many thousands of years, have been shaped by relationships with people and oftentimes very positive relationships with human communities. Um, much of the United States, I now have realized belatedly, was kind of tended and molded by indigenous people who lived here to be productive, um, you know, wild, semi wild um, landscapes, just like Japan's semi wild Satoyama landscapes were molded for thousands of years or hundreds of years to be more productive, more diverse, both for human beings and for, for wildlife. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Chuck has another question. Were all 10 bamboo dishes made from Takenoko? <laughs> I think if you read the article in Kyoto journal or the book, you know, Yes. And you you seem to reach your limit where you were thinking, okay, that's enough Takenoko for now at like the fifth course. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Yes. I was like, okay, that was fun. We're done now. But wait, I still have five more courses to eat. Um, so yeah, if he is curious, let's see, I have it flipped open to that page. If you want me to just like quickly read through some of the, Go the for dishes it. we have. So the the first course did not include any bamboo, I have to admit, but I think I, I don't think I counted that. That was just like a little some tea and a little like jelly. So then the second course was like the silky inner sheaths from the tip of the bamboo shoot in a creamy marinade and a bunch of others. So like every day, every course had like 10 other items in it as well, like one fava bean boiled with a piece of caviar on top of it or whatever, you know. Um, the next one we, oh, it was um, um, uh, dengaku was the second course, bamboo dengaku with a couple different uh, kinds of miso. That was good. Um, next, we had some soup. It was uh, suimono's clear broth with takenoko and wakame, which is a classic pairing of, of wild foods now or or cults, both are now cultivated, but they can also be both be wild. Um, the next one was takenoko sashimi, which is called sashimi, but it's not actually raw. Um, I have read in one of my uh, sansai books that there are people who eat, will actually eat bamboo shoots raw, but only like the minute that they cut them from the ground in the forest. So do not try this at home. Um, what what most people call takenoko sashimi is actually boiled takenoko, just served like the way you would serve sashimi with wasabi and, and soy sauce. Um, and then we had uh, kagamini, which is like the the um, signature dish of this restaurant, kind of simmered takenoko with different, um, you know, your kind of your classic mirin and, and shoyu and dashi broth. Um, 
Then we had cubes of takenoko in creamy green sauce flavored with kinome, which is also like another classic flavoring to use with takenoko, and it's another often wild, often gathered wild, sometimes cultivated. Um, we had grilled takenoko, katachiyaki, so like sliced, so you can see the shape of the takenoko. Uh, we had <laughs> a tempura. Takenoko tempura, which was quite lovely. Um, that was kind of like a refresher course because I was like, oh, okay, I can keep going because it tastes a little different when it's deep fried um, with, with sesame seeds on it. Then we had takenoko gohan, which is wonderful if it's not your 10th course of takenoko, um, as well as pickled takenoko to go on the side. And then we had the most for dessert. So yes, every course genuinely had a, a just, you know, very creative, creative uses of the plant. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been to tofu restaurants that have, you know, very similar, like 11 courses or 12 courses, everything made of tofu. Um, but I've never heard of that for bamboo. It's fabulous because we need more bamboo. We need more bamboo everything in my in my world. <laughs> I agree. I agree with you. It's an incredibly sustainable um, plant if it's cared for. It can be a very harmful plant in the environment. Like you mentioned, it can take over and kind of invade other parts of the forest. Um, but it has the potential to be a really positive plant as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the sea because you included seaweed in your book. Um, it's not technically in the forest, but it's in the sea's forest, so to speak. Uh, talk a little bit about what you found out and why you wanted to include it. Um, yeah, so seaweed is not included in Japanese books on sansai or foraging usually. Um, it is included in kind of the Western notion of what foraged foods include, and it is also very important um, in Japanese cuisine and culture and history. So I, I definitely wanted to include it in the book. Um, so yeah, first I went down to Shikoku. Um, I happened to be there and uh, I heard that some people still collected wild wakame in Shikoku, um, um, one area which is quite well known for its wakame and now is, is almost exclusively farmed uh, with aquaculture. Um, but there were these supposedly a few elderly people who still um, harvested it wild. So I wanted to go out and see if I could find them. And, and I eventually did. And, and I tasted it and tasted the, the cultivated kind. Um, and it, yeah, that was great. It, it, again, it made me think about um, the loss of diversity as we uh, shift to, as people shifted to aquaculture and shifted to, and this became just an area that grows welcoming and people will get their entire yearly income in some cases from this one crop. Whereas in the past, when they harvested the wild plant, um, they depended on many different types of seaweed and, and fish and shellfish to make up their yearly um, income and livelihood. Um, which is not to say that um, the use of wild plants or, or wild seaweed is always sustainable because it's not. There are many cases of uh, over harvesting that have damaged and destroyed um, you know, the, the ocean ecosystem. So I don't want to idealize it, but if it is 
used sustainably. I think it has the potential to um, encourage a more diverse um, coastal ecosystem. So that was interesting um, to, to kind of learn that history. Um, and I also went up to the Noto Peninsula, which is famous for its seaweed cuisine. I, I was told that they use continue to harvest and eat more varieties of wild seaweed than any other part of Japan. I think it was about 30. I would have to check the book, but I, I think that was the number they gave me. Um, and oftentimes the, the ama, the divers, traditional divers, free divers who will collect the, um, the seaweed and are, are just very knowledgeable about it have kind of been passing down this knowledge of the, the coastal ecosystem over the generations for, for many years. And, um, yeah, there's, there's a kind of some risk as well that, that that culture is dying out a bit and there's not so many, there are some young people carrying it on, but, but not as many as we would hope, um, you know, in order to really continue that knowledge and that relationship into the future. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a great special, I think it was a Patagonia film about mm -hmm. Ama divers and an American free diver, female diver came over and went diving, free diving with them. So they don't use tanks. Now they yeah. do use wetsuits, um, yeah. but they don't, you know, use oxygen and they go really deep. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real skill that has been cultivated over the years and um yeah i wasn't able to go out and see them do it unfortunately but i did go to a restaurant a little restaurant that was run by a mother and daughter who were both ama and they told me about you know how they did it and the the mother had grown up on an, an island off of um, the noto peninsula called higurajima I, I think was the name um which was like the island of the amas where they would live seasonally and um, dive for all kinds of, yeah, primarily their, their main one that they would sell was the abalone um, and also the, the um, uni, the, the um, sorry, my, my mind is going blank, but the, um, also the turban shells were their main kind of cash, cash um, crops, not really crops, but, seafood that they would sell and then they also gathered all kinds of seaweed as well mm -hmm. wow. um, and they yeah it was interesting because they had a, they really had a culture that was not reliant on agriculture at all because they lived on this rocky little island where they couldn't grow anything it was it's almost entirely based on on what they were able to harvest from the, the sea and then barter and trade for for rice and other other staples it's so interesting so interesting and it's it's so connected to Japanese history and heritage in so many ways. And you also talked to some indigenous people um, that I knew about collecting and foraging vegetables. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I had the opportunity to go up to Hokkaido um, twice during my travels. Um, to um, Nibutani, which is a community where a lot of Ainu people continue to live. Um, and, and the Ainu have always had a very strong um, foraging culture uh, and, and a great knowledge of all the different plants uh, that grow in that area um, because for much, much longer in their history as compared to the um, people, Japanese people on Honshu and far further south in Honshu, they continued 
to be a primarily hunting and gathering um, culture closer into the into the present than than other people in other parts of Japan. So while they did grow some grains uh, and some vegetables as well, the, those were kind of the accents to their diet and the hunted and gathered foods were the kind of core foods. Um, so yeah, they have a, a lot of knowledge and a kind of different way of preparing the foods um, compared to Japanese cooking. Um, uh, simpler in a lot of ways like they very much place the emphasis on like honoring the flavor of that food as it is as much as possible without in, Jap in Japan in Japanese cooking there's often a lot of processing involved with many of the sansai and a lot of heavy heavier seasonings a lot of the time um, kind of you might stew or simmer something with soy sauce and mirin and um, dashi things like that um, and the, the traditional Ainu cooking was more just, um, you know, uh, boil, boiled with salt later on, maybe with miso, miso after that was introduced into the culture, flavored with a little bit of fish oil, uh, maybe combined with deer or bear or salmon um, in a soup. Um, so, yeah, really different, really different kind of flavors that uh, I was fortunate enough to try out uh, a few women in Nibutani who had been uh, who have been documenting and studying the food culture in that area um, cooked a wonderful lunch for me using some of the local plants. Um, one thing that I, I found really interesting, of course, in your book, you have all these wonderful recipes so people can try it out. And one interesting thing is even in the Chicago area, you were able to go to a Japanese grocery store and buy what you needed to make some of these recipes that you have in the book. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. There's a great um, Japanese excuse me, grocery store outside of Chicago, Mitsuha. And uh, I think it's like the the a magnet for all Japanese like um, immigrants and people working overseas they <laughs> go there so yeah you can pretty much get anything well within reason and the other thing I discovered is that a lot of the um, sansai that grow in Japan either also grow here in the United States or there are related plants that grow here so it's it's possible to kind of seek things out and and um, prepare similar dishes here as well that's great. I love that. Of course, I grew up in Hawaii, so we have a lot of Japanese ingredients in the supermarkets. In California, there's a lot of uh, Japanese ingredients, but I didn't imagine that even in Chicago, you would have a Japanese grocery store. I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah there, it was funny when I moved out. I live out in the country, you know, corn country, um, and I discovered that there was like this great little authentic Japanese restaurant in the neighboring town because there was a factory there that employed a lot of Japanese um, workers. So they catered to them. And I was like, I'm just like being back in Japan and I'm in the middle of the Midwest. So yeah, that was fun. That's wonderful. And even though you've moved away, uh, your work is very connected still because of translation, but also you, like you said, you're looking for similar kinds of vegetables in the wild, as well as Japanese ingredients. You also have a rescue dog from the mountains of Japan. Is that right? 
Yeah, Momo. <laughs> we got I got her when I was living in Japan in Tokyo at a shelter in Tokyo. And they said they had picked her up in the mountains of Gifu. I don't know any more details about the story, but apparently she was wandering around out there. Um, and she still seems like half feral to me. I think she's like, oh, she, I think she must have been a wild dog or something that they just picked up um, because she she doesn't act entirely domesticated. But yeah, she came she came back to the United States with me, and yeah. She's still she's still going. <laughs> she's a beautiful dog, yeah. And uh, I love your Instagram posts about your uh, composting. You get some presents from the compost every now and again, things that grow that are <laughs> unexpected. Um, and I we have to mention that you also refer to a poison book when you're talking about selecting things from the wild. And I think this is a really important point for anybody thinking about going out and foraging food. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, I would say, first of all, if you're not experienced with foraging, don't be intimidated um, because once you really start to learn the plants, um, you know, when before you do, they kind of all look the same. This is what my husband tells me. He's like, hey, I think I found this. And I'm like, no, that actually has like five leaves and this has two leaves. Anyway, to me, they all look completely different because I have been studying it. But the important key thing is never go out and pick something until you have learned to identify it properly and with 150% confidence, either by learning with a mentor um, or through books or both. Um but just make sure you're completely confident. And I would also encourage you before you go out and pick anything to learn what the common poisonous plants are in your area, because there's a few lookalikes, um, you know, Nidin So has some very deadly lookalikes. It's a, a one of the most popular um, plant uh, greens among the Ainu, but it also has some very uh, toxic lookalikes. Um, Seri is, is a beloved, um, wild paddy plant um, that has docuseri, poisonous seri, that's um, one of the most poisonous plants out there <laughs> and easy to confuse if you don't, if you're not careful. That said, if you properly identify it, you can easily tell them apart. So just, just be careful and use common sense. Yeah, and even yeah. some of the edible things that you talk about um, are it's very important to understand how to cook it and how to make it. And this always brings me back to my question, how did humans way back in time figure out what they could eat, what they couldn't eat? Like in your research, did you find any indication of that? Like why did they start taking this horse chestnut and you have to do so many processes to make it non-toxic? before you can eat it. How did they figure that out? It's amazing. I have no idea. I'm also interested in that. It wasn't something that I was able to research, um, you know, in the course of the research for the book, but I would love to learn more about that as well. Um, but I do think that one interesting thing is that over time, um, well, if, if you're living in a rooted community in one place over multiple generations, People know the plants that grow there very well. They know them as well as the faces of the other people in their community, and they can tell them apart. 
Um, but our relationship to plants in a kind of mobile, unrooted, urban society is so completely different. We're coming to them oftentimes it's completely unknowns and we're starting from scratch to learn this entire new body of knowledge that really takes generations to build up you know how to use them how to use them properly um you know traditionally people weren't just going out and picking up something new and and figuring it out you know they they knew oh this plant has to be leached for in this way and then boiled and then this and that and those kinds of traditions are very important and they had meaning um so yeah I, I would say it's just important to respect those kind of traditional ways of preparing the foods okay fine if you want to experiment carefully and you know what you're doing but the basis i think has to be respecting that the traditional knowledge um about those plants yeah yeah Wonderful. Well, that's almost our time up. I want to send people to your wonderful website and blog, uh, winifredbird.com. They can also find you on Instagram, WinniebirdWords. And you have an event coming up on April 1st. Would you like to introduce that to us? Sure, yeah. I'm doing an event with Paul Pointer, the illustrator, and Asby Brown, who's a great writer about sustainability in Japan and other topics as well. Um, We're doing it on April 1st at 7 o'clock. That's Central Daylight Time. Uh, So that will be April 2nd in Japan in the morning, I think at 9 o'clock, maybe. Um, It's through Pilsen Community Books, which is a great little independent bookstore in Chicago that is hosting it. But it's going to be free and online and available to the world. That's the the upside of this whole uh, pandemic we've been going through as we get greater access to, um, you know, our, our community can be brought in to include the whole world these days. It's fa- fantastic like this this series and we have had the pleasure of having Asby Brown on the series many times. He has introduced his wonderful books on architecture and Japanese temple comp- carpentry as well as his research from the Edo period. Um, so please check that out in the series. He's been very generous with his time. A very exciting event. I want to check that out. Please come join us. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much for joining and for sharing your insights from your wonderful book. I hope you have a lot of success and people go and buy it. Go find your local bookstore and get it right now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for reading it and thank you for having me on. It was great to talk with you. Yeah, well, I look forward to having you on again and talking more about your environmental journalism articles that you've done, especially focused on Japan. That would be wonderful to add to the series. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Joan says, thanks so much. It was great having a chance to hear you speak and learn even more. Chuck says, thank you both for the adventure. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Uh, Tomorrow morning, we're talking with Lauren about her Minka renovations. She has an old uh, traditional Japanese house in the countryside that she's been doing some beautiful renovations. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at InboundAmbassador.com. Thank you for commenting. Thank you for joining. You can also sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel. 
Patreon, buy me a coffee, coffee or haps. Have a great day.